Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host today for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Ellie Mayor, who is a co-author of Beautiful Geometry. Beautiful Geometry is an exquisite coffee table book that merges the beauty of art with the beauty of mathematics. If your interest is in mathematics, you can come for the mathematics and you'll certainly stay for the art. But if it's the other way around, you can come for the art and we're going to try and talk you into staying for the mathematics. Ellie is speaking to us today from Jerusalem. Ellie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I just want to mention, you should also mention the co-author of that book because it's a joint project of me, myself, and Eugen Jost, spelled J-O-S-T. Can, can I mention who he was? Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. He, he is, not was, is a um, well-known Swiss artist who does wonderful artwork based on mathematical patterns and numerical sequences. And um, we bonded about four years ago and decided to cooperate on that project. So that's the briefly the um, story of how the whole thing began. Okay, that's not the story of how you got to where you are at the moment, because you told me the other day that you had retired after 53 years of teaching. So why don't you tell us a little something about yourself, your career, and then we'll start discussing geometry. All right. Um, I was born and raised in Israel and did my uh, bachelor's degree at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and then my master's and PhD at the Technion, the Israeli Institute of Technology, And um, then I had to do something which is almost required unofficially of any anyone pursuing an academic career in Israel. You have to spend a few years in the United States. (laughs) There's a (laughs) is that broadening or actually a formal requirement? Well, it's not a formal requirement, but you better do it. (laughs) There is a saying. Well, we're glad to have you. There is a saying here in this country that there are two degrees which are absolutely necessary for an academic degree. One, your PhD, and even more important, your uh, GIA, which is Yiddish for Geweisen in America. I was in America. (laughs) 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 So I had to show that I did that, uh, fulfilled that requirement. And that was the worst time to apply for a job in the United States. It was like in the 1975-76, where there was a deep recession in um, in the academic world in, in the at the universities and so I wrote to some 50 universities all by by a mechanical typewriter it was before computers right each letter had to be written again and again differently and they all said well your resume is very impressive but we cannot afford you any any salary or we don't have a space and so on and so forth eventually, one university offered me half a position for one year, and I accepted, and that was the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. I've never heard of Eau Claire. I barely <laughs> heard of Wisconsin, so we pulled out. We have a pile of National Geographics. 
So we tried to find one with Wisconsin on the spine. And it so happened the very one, the very bottom one, at the bottom of that pile had Wisconsin on it. So we pulled, pulled out the, the bottom volume and the whole thing collapsed, of course. <laughs> and we opened at random. And what do we see? A bunch of guys with icicles from their, from their eyebrows. Uh, sitting on a on a frozen lake, drilling a hole and doing ice fishing. <laughs> my, not too much of that in you know, Israel. And go there. I'm not going with you. I'm staying. There. <laughs> so it was really something. We, you know, Israel is a hot hot desert country basically, and the only place you can see ice here usually is in your in your freezer and your refrigerator. So to see these guys, a t- temperature of minus forty or so was beyond belief, but we eventually made it and came there for one year. Then the one year extended into a second year and a third year, and before we knew it, we spent there nine years and eventually moved on to um, to Michigan and finally to Illinois, to Chicago, where I was teaching until a year and a half ago at Loyola University. I was teaching the history of math. That's fascinating for several reasons. <clears throat> Number one is I'm a Chicagoan, or at least I was a Chicagoan for a long, uh, a long period of my life. Um, and in addition to which, I went through exactly the same type of situation that you did because I originally got a teaching position uh, at UCLA in 1967. And in 1973, essentially the funding that had supported my position and a lot of other people's dried up. And I was at the same in the same type of situation that you were. But fortunately, I was in the United States and I had I was able to obtain a position at uh, California State University, Long Beach, which was basically, although not in the same area code as UCLA, was 30 minute drive away. And so I was able to stay in California, where incidentally, it is never too hot and never too cold. It's just right. Yeah. (laughs) In Israel, it's usually too hot. (laughs) Yeah, that's my impression. <laughs> anyway, since we are chatting, I have to tell you, we came here. We, we now we we are now since I, I retired from teaching, we are splitting our time between Chicago and Jerusalem. And the day after we came to Jerusalem on December ten, the day after there was a huge snowstorm here, like one that hasn't been seen here for for uh, decades, and the whole city was pa- paralyzed for about five days. Because Jerusalem is not like Chicago. I mean, the roads are very narrow, and it's a very hilly city. And we are not geared to heavy snowfall. So we were basically stranded under house arrest for five days. (laughs) We knew about that storm from the Internet before leaving Chicago. So we packed a few loaves of bread and some, some necessities to survive here for a few days, and it helped us. Otherwise, we would have had survived. (laughs) <laughs> well, you wouldn't have had to worry about water because when snow melts, that's what it forms. Well, after that storm, we, we hadn't, haven't had a drop of rain for the, ne- for the next six weeks, which is bad because this country needs a lot of rain and we didn't have any. So after that single snow, snowstorm, the winter here is really more like springtime. 
Well, I don't know whether or not you're talking about Israel or the United States, because in California, we need a lot of rain, too, and we're not getting it. But on the other hand, on the East Coast, um, they're getting a tremendous amount of it. And it's interesting because all these tie in with geometry, because it's the geometry of the sphere plus the motion of the uh, the motion of the cloud systems, the weather patterns, etc., which are a form of geometry, which dictates the weather that uh, we experience. Experience. But I think that's way beyond, you know, way beyond what Euclid was looking at. Anyway, it is quite uncommon to find a book that combines mathematics and art. Beautiful Geometry is just that. It's an art book based on geometric patterns. I know you described that you and Eugen Jost got together and wrote this, but who had the idea? Well, the idea came to me, but I have to give Eugen equal credit. Can I tell you in a, in a, in a word how we met? Would that be okay? Be delighted. Be delighted. This is your show, Ellie. Right. We, about four years, in, in 2010, I think it was 2010, I was invited to give a talk to the upper high school class, math class of uh, the cantonal Cantonal High School in Aarau, Switzerland. Now, they, Switzerland has 20 or so cantons, which are like states in the United States. And um, Aarau is a town about midway between Zurich and Basel. And their high school has some claim for fame because young Einstein, when he was 16 years old, spent there two years, his happiest years in, in, in up until that point in his life. And uh, the same building that he attended, where he attended school, still exists. They had some additions, but the um, basically same school. And there are there is a lot about Einstein there, several plaques and a, a, a bust of him. And it was really interesting. The, the, the town really became famous because of that. So we were received, my wife and I, with his great honors. And at lunchtime, there were a few guests, and among them was Eugen Jost. I have n- known about him before, but never met him. So we instantly bonded, and we share many, many things, even though we are separated by, what, 4,000 miles of <laughs> of ocean. But he and I love geometric patterns. He lives in patterns his whole life is centers around patterns wherever he see whenever he sees some pattern whether it's in architecture or um, in uh, in nature or in um, in uh, in some math design he immediately gets some idea to make of it a piece of art and he has done wonderful things both by by hand and on on his computer and then we share a second thing, which is even more important, a good sense of humor. <laughs> In a project like that, it helps a lot. We um, often teased each other and, and criticized each other all in good spirit, and no one got offended, and that worked, worked uh, in our, to our advantage. So that's how we got to know each other. I think that's a, you know, anytime I see collaboration, especially between two areas that you think are so disparate, it's always a pleasure because they're both aspects of the human intellect and human creativity. And I think that in doing things like this, to a certain extent, you're helping foster 
uh, a bridge between what C.P. Snow described as the two cultures, because I think it's true that scientists appreciate art more than artists appreciate science and mathematics. And anything that can be done to make artists appreciate science and mathematics a little more, such as a book like Beautiful Geometry, I think it's a wonderful thing to, uh, yeah. uh, to do. You, you, are, you are absolutely correct that, that affinity between art and math and even more between, art, between music and math. So, so often you hear uh, stories about how music and math are so much related. But unfortunately, that relationship, that affinity goes mainly one way. Mathematicians appreciate appreciating art and music, but very seldom the other way around. And that's not to say anything against the art community, but that's a fact of life that the appreciation usually goes one way, I have to say. Yeah, I've noticed that, you know, I've noticed that too, but it's interesting when you talk to, uh, I've seen studies about this with elementary school children, when you ask them what their favorite topic is in school, when they're very young, they say arithmetic. And by the time that they reach seventh or eighth grade, at least in the United States, if you ask them what their least favorite subject is, it's arithmetic. (laughs) So somewhere along the line, we're doing something that's sadly wrong, because what's happened is that we've managed to kill enthusiasm for something that is intriguing because I taught, uh, um, you taught history of mathematics for a long time. For a long time, I taught mathematics for elementary school teachers. And I think that one of the most important things that you can do is whenever you see enthusiasm in a child for something, you want to kindle it. You don't want to, you don't want to squelch it. And it's just sort of unfortunate that whatever we're doing in, uh, in education is is obviously not promoting the, uh, you know, promoting the real interest in uh, arithmetic and geometry that both you and I feel there should be. Well, I tell you, it it takes, I think, two two things. First of all, you need to have a good teacher, an inspiring teacher, and there is no shortage of those. But also, you have to pick up the right subject. I mean, arithmetic can be interesting. For instance, um, I did some research on children's perception of of infinity. And infinity is not an easy subject, but amazingly, even four or five-year-old kids understand already, have already an appreciation of infinity, something which goes on forever, like like a road never terminating or, or railroad tracks seeming to meet at the horizon but actually don't meet, so they meet at infinity. And uh, how? What's the high? What's the the largest number you can reach to? And before you know it, at, at the age of five, they already know that there is no largest number. So it would have been nice to take these subjects, which really trigger their imagination, and develop those subjects. So instead, we do all the boring things of multiplication table and and so on and so forth, long division which are important, but they're not very inspiring. And I'll be honest, I also hated them in, high, in grade school. <laughs> so, well, we differ a little there because I absolutely love them. <laughs> but that's probably an indication that I was fated to become a mathematician. But I remember I used to go around thinking that uh, every time I saw the two seven, every time I saw a baseball player batting 286, I knew he was batting two for seven on the average. I just love numbers. But not everybody does, but everybody loves patterns. Everybody finds patterns beautiful. And that I gather that you wrote the math 
mathematical portions and Eugen produced the graphics. Did you collaborate on the graphics? Did you offer suggestions or did you just say to Eugen, well, here's an interesting geometrical result one way or another. And then Eugen went off into a corner and came up with, hey, what do you think of this? Well, actually, it was like a two way process. Um, we, when, when we first started to collaborate on that project, we wondered, should we have some guidelines? And it soon became clear that we cannot, uh, we cannot have strict guidelines to go by because geometry has hundreds, maybe thousands of, of theorems. Each one of, or many, many, many of them are, could be, are very beautiful and could be, uh, uh, could be a chapter in our book. But that didn't work. So eventually we settled on whenever he had some pattern or some theorem that he loved, and he knows a lot of math, even though he is not he is an artist, but he, he knows a lot of math. He, he made a drawing of his own, and then I decided would that be a, a proper proper theorem to discuss in our book and if I liked it and if I thought it can be explained in, in, in a simple way, I said yes let's do that. In other cases I suggested to him some theorem and asked him if he could come up with some creative design based on it so it was a, a totally mutual process of give and take and it, it worked, it really worked I th- yes, it certainly did, and I think that it. I think that you went about it the right way because I think it's a lot easier for a mathematician to support art than it is for an artist to support mathematics. Simply because there's because the literature in mathematics and the amount of mathematics that has been produced probably greatly dwarfs the amount of art, and you have much more to call upon. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to discuss uh, at, at this moment a couple of the early chapters in the book yes. because they're they're two theorems that um, that I think are known to virtually every one of our uh, audience, and they ba- you basically start off the book with them. And the first was Thales of Miletus, and I've always been a big Thales of Miletus fan for a reason that was not in your book. Um, he was, of course, he was a great geometer, and I knew that he had constructed the theorem about vertical angles being equal, and I also knew that he was the first person to uh, come up with a, a come up with a prediction of an eclipse of the sun. But what I did not know was the fact that uh, he had, he was the one who discovered that in a circle, if you draw a diameter and then draw, uh, take a point on the circumference and draw uh, line segments from the ends of the diameter to the specific point on the circumference that the angle subtended was a right angle. I did not know that Thales was responsible for that. Well, at least that's what tradition says. You know, we don't have any any hard evidence of any of those early Greek mathematicians. Not much survived of their writing, if any. And so that um, all we know about him and then Pythagoras and so on came by later historians who sometimes lived 100, 200, 300 years later. And um, 
based their writings on, on word of mouth, on tradition. So everything we know about Thales should be taken with a grain of salt, but uh, allegedly he was the one who proved that theorem. And um, in, he actually, he was the first of the long line of Greek philosophers who asked why and not just how. For instance, why does the diameter divide a circle into two equal halves? Now, that might seem like a trivial question, but he wanted to understand why. So we don't know how he proved it, but at least he was the first one to wanted to know why things happen, why things work as they are, and not just how to solve a given problem. One of the things that impressed me about the book, as soon as I opened it, some of the picture, some of the graphics were absolutely just spot on, I felt. And the one for the one, the graphic accompanying Thales of Miletus, which I'm going to try and describe to our audience, and I hope that the description is accurate, but it's one of the things that made me wish that this were a video conference so I could just flash that on the screen. But it consists of six, uh, I'm sorry, it consists of nine separate squares in a three by three arrangement. And what you see looks like a sun rising. It's a yellow circle on a uh, on basically a dark horizon. And you see the yellow circle rise um, to the point where finally the sun has risen and it's just over the horizon and the sun is tangent to the uh, horizon. Yes. But what made what made the picture, what made the graphics so spectacular it for me is the way that several theorems were incorporated here because one of the things that you do is you mention a theorem which I don't know whether this was known to Thales, but you mentioned that uh, that what the uh, uh, that what the diameter does is I think the word is subtends a uh, subtends a right angle on the circumference, but any chord subtends exactly the same angle, no matter what point on the circumference you choose, as long as you either choose it on the major arc, the longer arc of the circle, or the shorter arc, the shorter arc of the circle. And what's brilliant about the picture is that when you see the sun rising to the point where it's less than halfway up, um, uh, Eugen drew two sets of angles for each picture, and they're exactly the same. The ones that are set there, you can see that the angular measure is the same, even though they're on different sides of the, uh, even though they're on different sides of the sun. Yeah. It's beautiful, and he did that both above and below the, uh, the horizon. And then when he got to the point where it was 90 degrees, he drew a bunch of different right triangles subtended both above and below the horizon, just in an inspired graphic. I thought this was brilliant. It, it was it was Eugen's brilliant, brilliant idea to draw that, And uh, but then I gave it the name, Sunrise over Miletus. That was my name. <laughs> and and you know the interesting thing is, had you just mentioned Sunrise over Miletus, because Thales, as I say, is responsible for the first uh, prediction of the eclipse of the sun. I fell in love with the book as soon as I saw that picture. And then you mentioned that you and Eugen often went 
back and forth um, on an issue. I won't say that I had a bone to pick with the Pythagorean theorem, because how can you pick a bone with what I think is the greatest theorem in mathematics? I don't know whether you feel the same way, but I think that's the greatest theorem in mathematics. Well, I'm a little bit biased because I just wrote like six, seven years ago a book on the Pythagorean theorem, so I'm not exactly objective about that subject. But yes, it is certainly the most famous or let's say most well-known theorem in all of math. I mean, you ask someone, some, some, any, any person on the street, if he or she remembers anything from high school geometry, and if, if at all, they will mention the Pythagorean theorem. I've even, well, what I, I've been, I'm sorry, go ahead. On T-shirts, on, on T-shirts. Now, that's the universal bulletin board, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay. What I was about to say for the Pythagorean theorem is I always tell my students that in order to celebrate the discovery of the Pythagorean theorem, Pythagoras ordered a hundred oxen to be barbecued. And I said that that sets a measure of how important a theorem is. And I said, if you take the other two theorems that I think are the co-runners for the the second most important theorem, I'd say the fundamental theorem of arithmetic which says that every number can be factored uniquely into primes mm-hmm. and the fundamental theorem of calculus which we won't go into but is an absolutely spectacular one but they're only worth about 60 barbecuing about 60 oxen for <laughs> and when you take my production I think my greatest theorem is probably worth one side of oxen ribs well, let, let me uh, interrupt you here for a minute if, if I may <laughs> that sure. story about the hundred oxen is repeated many, many times, and it's it's. Uh, I think it's a little bit apocryphal. I, I I doubt if that was true, because the Pythagoreans, the schools founded by Pythagoras, were a sect that abhorred slaughter of of any kind, human killing and killing of animals. So they thought that they sacrificed a hundred oxen to celebrate the theorem. It makes a nice story, but uh, there is a lot of doubt if that act- actually, to be honest, I, I was about to write that in, in the book, and then one of the reviewers who went through the manuscript said, don't write it, and I listened to him, and I think he was right. <laughs> you know something? You want to keep that story simply because it's such a great story, even if it isn't historically accurate. Sometimes what you have to do is you have to sacrifice historical accuracy in the interests of drama and art. There's a difference between telling that story orally to an audience and writing it in a book because what you write is permanent, you know, and then they, it can be held against you. So <laughs> <laughs> you could always say, you know, what do you science, like, like the Newton and the falling apple? There's absolutely no evidence that that actually happened. Newton- <laughs> <laughs> but there's no evidence that it didn't. That, that's true. But uh, <laughs> so in archaeology, there's a saying the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> I think they use that, you know, they use that in more than archaeology. Anyway, let me get into the pe- the plate that accompanies um, uh, that accompanies the Pythagorean theorem, because maybe you can give me some insight into why this plate was chosen. And then I'm going to uh, I'm going to describe one, which I think you will immediately recognize. And it's the one that I would have chosen. But the plate that is used, um, Eugen has a uh, a graphic of 
what looks to be a right triangle, yeah. but it really isn't because it's um, the hypotenuse has fifty uh, has forty nine squares on it. It's yeah. a seven by seven high. Uh, uh, the hypotenuse is of length seven, and each side is of length five. And as we know, five squared is twenty five. Twenty five plus twenty five is fifty, which is not equal to seven squared, which is forty nine. Right. And he has one square over on the side, and I. Perhaps you could tell me exactly why what this represents and why it was so chosen, because it was a little confusing to me. You mean what that, that illustration represents? Yeah, if you if you have an insight into what yeah, Eugen well, was thinking it's, it's, at the it's time. It's a piece of humor. Okay. It's a piece. It was, <laughs> we, we, if you read the introduction, the preface, we, and as I told you, both of us have a good sense of humor. We like to, to, to poke fun and to tease and it's basically teasing. There is some twist there, which I, am not, I don't know even what the twist is, and that probably is a secret that Eugen will not share with anyone. But it, he made it look like it should be the Pythagorean theorem, but at some point there is some little twist that makes uh, 25 plus 25 equal 49 rather than 50. So <laughs> the whole thing was meant as a poking fun. It, you know... One reviewer, I have to tell you, he criticized that illustration just like you did, and he said it might confuse the reader, but we decided to overrule him, or maybe her, I don't know, they, they didn't leave a name. <laughs> because we wanted to have, be a little bit whimsical. We wanted to break the rigidity of most math books. You know, math books can be so, well, uh, sometimes boring. Because yeah. So, <laughs> I'll be honest, boring because they are so technical and you really have to, to, to have an enormous amount of concentration to follow. We wanted to be a little bit on the light side, to have a little bit fun. So, and there is a quote there, by a, um, an American artist by the name, um, escape me right now, it will come to me in a minute, who said that in math, two plus two is always four, but in art, it can be five or six or anything. Uh, Joseph Albers, that's his name, A-L-B-E-R-S. Oh, okay. Joseph Albers. I was actually going to mention Joseph Albers at some stage because there are two artists who are well known for their love of the square. One is Piet Mondrian, who, you know, produced a whole series of paintings entitled Homage to the Square. Right. But Joseph Albers I, uh, has a number of, I, I, they're graphics of some sort, but what they are is they are squares inside of squares and the colors, you know, they, there are color gradations and maybe they go from light, maybe they go from yellow to sort of light brown or maybe they go from rose to a darker color of red but they're visually very appealing and they're all based on geometry and you know we, we you know everybody knows that there's a lot of uh, appeal in geometry but I would like to um, uh, I would like to comment on what you called uh, Eugen's, uh, you know, Eugen's whimsy, because there's a fairly well-known pu picture puzzle, and I can't exactly recall its name, but it's the same type of thing. It looks like, you know, it looks like the 
count of the number of squares is correct, but it isn't. It's missing yes. one. Yeah, well, and, yeah, there, there is a lot of those. I mean, that's not, not unique. I mean, there is a – how to describe in words. You have to see it visually. But there are, there are several well-known books on, like, math puzzles where there is some kind of a paradox which is difficult to, to detect where the flaw is. So it's uh, – <laughs> yeah. we still liked it, you know. I can't, you know, I can't blame you, but I have to, I have to put in a plug for what I consider absolutely the loveliest proof of the Pythagorean theorem, or at least the simplest one that I know, which I'm sure you're familiar with. If you consider the Pythagorean theorem to be a squared plus b squared equals c squared, what you do is you just draw a large square of side a plus b. You mark off a division point on each line. Uh, of length A on each of the four sides of the square, and then you connect them and you get a square inside of uh, side C, and you can see immediately just from the uh, algebra, knowing that A plus B quantity squared is A squared plus 2AB plus B squared, that, you know, the Pythagorean theorem falls right out. And I must admit, that's the picture that I would have used. You you, you mean, just to to make what you said uh, a little bit more visual, a square inside which there is a smaller tilted square. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Square. Well, that, that, that proof is actually known as the Chinese proof because there is some evidence the Chinese already knew it, maybe even before Pythagoras. But Euclid did not accept that proof. He would not have approved that proof because that proof, in a way, is a physical proof, in a way. It depends on moving the uh, side triangles, the triangles at the side of between the small and, and big square, moving them around to make them uh, overlap each other, which is a physical uh, operation. And Euclid insisted on that everything should be done by pure logic, proved by pure logic, and not in reference to any physical process. So even though that proof is perhaps the simplest of all the 400 or so proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. By the way, there is a website where you can post your own proof and they will uh, show it. And if you have a nice color, the diagram, they will show it. There are again and again supposedly new proofs of that theorem. For some reason, that theorem has attracted more proofs than any other theorem. And um, so that proof that you mentioned is perhaps the simplest one, but it, it is not totally in the spirit of Euclid. Euclid's proof actually is a very, not, not an easy one, a very complicated one, but that still consists, is regarded as the classic, classical proof of the theorem. Oh, I remember. I sat through that classic proof when I was in high school, and boy, was that a struggle. Um, The one where I I think, you know, everybody's seen it, the one where you draw a square on the hypotenuse and then drop down uh, uh, and then and then it involves rectangles. And it was just a bunch of work. But one of the things that you mentioned actually touched on another question that I uh, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, You mentioned that Euclid 
Talmud would not allow this particular proof because it was physical in nature, I wouldn't have said that. What I would have said it was algebraic in nature, um, because when when you see the proof when when you see the proof given to you in a book, it's usually given as a mixture of geometry and algebra. Yes. Um, and what they do is they say, you know, in order to uh, in order to appreciate the proof, you need to know the algebraic expansion that a plus b quantity squared is a squared plus 2ab plus b squared. And then the rest of the proof is basically algebraic manipulations, which I don't think Euclid would have objected to, because this is one thing that I don't know as much about geometry as I should. As I remember, um, geometry consisted of what you might call geometric postulates, such as a point is that which has no part, and between any two points, there exists one and only one line. But it also has relationships um, such as things equal to each other are equal, things equal to a third object are equal to themselves, and things such as equals added to equals are equal. And those sort of strike me not so much geometry, more in the line of of algebra. And I'm wondering what what Euclid would have thought of, uh, I mean, you've already told me he would have rejected this proof for physical reasons, but would have re- he would have rejected it also because maybe it touched too much on algebra, and of course they didn't know algebra at that well, time. Well, actually, they did know some algebra, except not in the form that we know it today. Today, to us, algebra is like a language of symbols. Symbols and x, y means x times y, and so forth. The Greeks knew some algebra, but it was all a geometric kind of algebra. The formula you just mentioned, a plus b square equals a square plus 2ab plus b square, they knew that formula, and it can be proved purely on a geometric, uh, in a geometric way by taking a square and dissecting it into, again, I need to show it to you on a blackboard, which I don't have now, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, dissecting a square into two smaller squares and a and two rectangles, congruent rectangles, and you show that these rectangles have areas AB and BA in that order, AB and BA, but because these rectangles are congruent, therefore AB equals BA, and you have the, the formula as we know it. That was a geometric proof which, if I'm not mistaken, actually appears in Euclid. Likewise, a squared minus b squared equals a plus b times a minus b, etc. They knew some algebra, but it was not a workable algebra like ours today. Today, we use algebra as a tool. For them, these relations were mainly geometric relations among areas, among shapes. And that might be one reason why he did not use that proof. Again, we, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Euclid, and we don't even know who exactly he was. Nothing about him is known for fact. So we can only speculate what went through his mind. We just don't know. But what the, the proof that we have, actually there are two proofs in Euclid, the one that's mentioned in my book, and in book six of Euclid there is a second proof, which is more dependent on on congruent triangles. Um, so he, he offered two proofs, quite different ones. Why he didn't offer the so-called Chinese proof, we can only speculate. 
you know, one of the things also when I was looking at your book, not every topic in your book is what I would consider to be pure Euclidean geometry. Some of it are is extensions of geometry that were found later. And um, for instance, uh, you have you have such things as the snowflake curve. I remember first being acquainted with the snowflake curve. Um, I can't recall where I first saw it, but the snowflake curve is something that's tremendously attractive. Um, And again, it's one of those, it's one of those things that it's difficult to describe, uh, that it's difficult to describe if you're just doing audio. But one of the things that I would say to anyone who's listening to your show, to this show, pick up a copy of the book because the book is just beautiful. And I'd like to go into a couple of other topics that aren't so much related to pure mathematics as they are to the book. Is there, are there, um, it must have occurred to Eugen at some stage that maybe the plates that he has produced for the book, or this, uh, I, I would imagine that they're plates that there are original somewhere which were reproduced for the book, they'd make a good exhibit at an art show. Has he considered doing that? Do you happen to know? You, you mean an exhibit of Eugen's work? work? No, uh, oh, I'm sure he's done exhibits of his work, but exhibits specifically of the plates that were used in this book. Well, I know that there are uh, many mathematical exhibits worldwide, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of these theorems have been shown in museums. I mean, that's not unusual. Is that what you were asking? I, I'm not ex- not exactly. Um, there are fifty-one plates. Maybe there are more in this book. I always thought, uh, you know, I I I didn't read it cover to cover, counting everything. But basically, even though there are ancillary diagrams in some of the chapters, mm-hmm. each chapter features a specific plate by Eugen. Am I correct about yes. that? Well, actually, sometimes more than one. There are about 60, over 60 play, uh, color plates, yes. Okay, okay, so there are 60 color plates. Has he considered Has he considered an exhibit of just those 60 colored plates? Oh, just those. Okay, I must have missed a word in your original question. Well, no, we haven't, and that's actually up to Eugen, because he, after all, he the artist who did those. I know that he had several, he's quite well known in Switzerland and in Germany and France and Europe. He had, has had several successful exhibits. You know what, I will, with your permission, I will suggest that to him. I will. Oh, I, it, t- not only that, but I, but I, <laughs> you have my permission to do anything you want whatsoever. But I would like you to do the following: if he does decide on such an exhibition, tell him to send it to Los Angeles so I can look at it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because I would love to. You know, I've I've been to um um I uh several of my relatives are involved in one way or the other with art. I don't know how that happened. The genes went wrong somewhere. I can't exactly describe it. But anyway, I've been to a lot of exhibits that I have to. You know, that I sort of have to restrain myself from sarcastic and snide comments because, after all, these are my relatives or friends of mine, and I love 
to go to an art exhibit where I could just look at every single piece and say, you know, I absolutely love that. And the only time that ever happened is when I just looked at an exhibit of Monet's Water Lilies, and that's all it consisted of. Mm. Um, but I know that if I just saw these 60, these 60 plates as an exhibit, I'd be a really happy camper. You know what? It, it's actually an, an excellent idea, a wonderful idea. I will mention it to him right now after our interview. I will send him an email and suggest that to him. And who knows? And, get, and you might tell him also that 60 plates is 5 times 12, and those are two numbers in a Pythagorean triple, 5, 12, <laughs> and 13. I, so <laughs> so he probably, he's probably well aware of that. Um, there are a couple of other, uh, a couple of other specific uh, topics in the book that that definitely, you know, when I saw them, they uh, they struck my fancy for different reasons. There are instances in which you go, um, you know, in which you go a little beyond what would ordinarily be considered geometry, and that's perfectly fine. For instance, everybody loves the Fibonacci numbers, okay. and the Fibonacci numbers lead into the golden ratio. So, which is, of course, a classic example of the Greek integration of art with geometry. So I like the idea of the Fibonacci numbers, but the idea of beyond infinity, which I think is, I think beyond infinity is the last chapter in the book. Yes, it is. And you, I, I, I suppose you're asking me, what does that have to do with geometry, right? Well, I know that the one-to-one -one proof that's typically given, um, for instance, you can show that any any uh, any real line segment is in one-to-one -one correspondence with any uh, uh, other real the points of any other real line segment, and you do that by means of the you know by means of the diagram in the book. But that didn't really strike me as pure geometry. This is more on the lines of set theory with George Cantor. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, you know, there is again no clear-cut dividing line between geometry and things which are close to geometry. We, we let, let's just say all the plates, or, or almost all the plates, are, are geometric in nature. And therefore, we thought here once, once in a while, here and there, we will also include some numerical sequence or number pattern if it can be illustrated in some nice geometric way. And by the way, the frontispiece of that book, I don't know if you saw it, is a, a, a picture in beautiful blue called infinity, like a square inside a square inside a square, but, but tilted relative to each other, a little bit like Joseph Albers, what you, as you described. But, but he lines up his squares. Right. All the squares are parallel. Right. No, here they are not. They are tilted relative to each other. It's the frontispiece, which is a beautiful picture. He actually gave us, my wife and I, a signed copy of that um, that print. Oh, lovely. And we are framing it and putting it here in Jerusalem in our, in our little apartment. And uh, so it is, in a way, geometry. Uh, the, the, we didn't want to put a rigid, like artificial dividing line between uh, geometry and other branches. Like you said, the Greeks already knew had some algebra. Euclid, the book, the thirteen elements of Euclid, thirteen elements of Euclid include some algebra in a geometric garb. So we felt that these divisions are, should not be regarded as rigidly as they are as they are often. Uh, described, you know. 
Incidentally, you included some of my absolute favorite curves, and I want to thank you for that. You included epicycloids and hypocycloids and cycloids, and I'm a huge fan of them. And I must admit, one of the things that I think uh, one of the pleasures and advantages of doing mathematics nowadays is I can remember when I was, you know, when I took courses in mathematics, doing such things as as sketching parametric equations or polar coordinates, yeah. working out these graphs were tremendously difficult. And now they've got, you know, you can go to any number of websites where you can stick in your own parametric curve and they will they will dynamically plot it for you so you see it unfold. And when you see the epicycloids and the hypocycloids trace out, it's just lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, I have to it's add, wonderful. If I may... That sure. is absolutely true. With with a grapher today, the seventy or eighty dollar grapher, you can do infinitely many designs. But there is also some of the old magic gone, because in the older days there were mechanical tools that would do that job, and you could actually see what's happening. Like not not so many years ago, like twenty thirty years ago, there was a a, a, a favorite popular game called uh, the Spirograph. I'm sure you. Oh, I remember Spirograph. Oh yes, lovely. And I, I incidentally just before leaving Chicago, I saw it in a in a in a puzzle store in a new edition. So apparently, it didn't lose any of its popularity. A, a set of teeth to toothed wheels or, or uh, cog wheels, and you engage them and put a pencil inside, and you could create could create an in, almost infinite variety of different cycloids, hypocycloids, epicycloids, you name it, and you could actually see and feel with your own hand what's happening, which of course you cannot with the computer. So some of the old magic is gone with the electronic age. But that's you know something, you're absolutely right. There are any number of things that we've lost, but I'd have to feel that, you know, I have to feel that we've gained more than we've lost. Because, for instance, I just think it's wonderful. You and I probably would never have met. And we probably, you know, there's a chance that, uh, well, I go to Chicago occasionally. I'm there every five years for my high school reunion. Maybe we'll, maybe our paths will cross then. But I think it's just so wonderful to have something like the Internet available where you and I can talk. You really are in Jerusalem at this moment, right? Yes. Otherwise, oh, okay. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned something to me when we spoke last week. There was a bad connection last week, remember? And um, you said, well, maybe in Jerusalem the speed of light is less. Than <laughs> <laughs> I love <laughs> Well, the person who was at that, oh, uh, just a couple of other things. One of the things that I certainly want to ask you about is, do you have any projects on the horizon that you would be interested in telling our listeners about? Well, truth be told, yes, I do. But um, I learned in life not to brag about unfinished business. So <laughs> let's just... Okay, well, I've learned, I learned something called the arithmetic of projects, which this may be something that I've learned that one idea in development plus three half-finished projects equals no projects. You bet. You, you said it. <laughs> so there are some projects and in various stages of, of development, but... Maybe we'll talk about about them next year, a year from today. <laughs> uh, Ellie, whenever, you know, if you do something, please be sure to get in touch with me because not only have I enjoyed this conversation yeah. and I'm sure our I'm sure our listeners have as well, but once again, let me recommend to all our listeners go out and 
take a look at beautiful geometry because beautiful geometry is really rare. It's not just math. It's not just art. It's not just somebody put math next to art. It's a fusion of the two, and I really recommend it. Ellie, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much thank for you. being, uh, being here to today. Thank you. All the best, and we'll keep in touch. We sure will. Okay. Best wishes, Ellie. Take care. Take thank care. you. Thank you.